This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. In the 50th year of the Academy Awards, the music branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences drew up some new rules for the 43rd year of the original song category. No doubt that this made the songwriters sweat a little bit more, as they hoped their creation would make it all the way to the final five, and maybe be this year's Academy Award-winning song. Perhaps in response to the selection of A World That Never Was over Car Wash as a nominee in 1976, the music branch instituted a new voting system that appears to be designed to recognize the song over the names of the people who wrote them. After the songwriters officially submitted their songs for consideration, the members of the music branch were asked to attend a special screening of each of the films containing those songs. Those in attendance would rate the song's relevance to the film and how, according to the rules, it serves, quote, the dramatic, emotional, or atmospheric mood, end quote, as well as its craftsmanship. Basically, they were saying that the names of the songwriters and its place on the Billboard chart, or not being on the Billboard chart, should have no bearing on a voter's feelings about the song. After viewing the song's appearance in the film at that screening, the voter would get a scorecard to allow them to rate the song. The voter would give the song a number rating, 10 for perfect, 8, 6, or 4. If the average vote of everyone who rated the song came to 7.0 or greater, the song would be put on the preliminary nomination list of eligible songs. If the song's rating averaged 6.99, well, too bad. All a song needed was to have a majority of voters rank it at 10 or 8. And there was no rule that specified that the preliminary list had to include 10 songs. In this first year of rating songs, only seven made the preliminary ballot, signaling that these seven were the only ones to score an average of 7.0 or higher. These songs were screened again for music branch members who would once again rate the songs with a score of 10, 8, 6, or 4. The five songs that scored the highest average scores would be the five Oscar nominees, whether or not they got an average score of 7.0 or not. After we hear the five nominated songs of 1977, you'll learn more about some songs that failed to get that 7.0 rating in the first round and you can decide if they were worthy of such a grade or not. And remember that I'm going to be revealing some plot spoilers throughout this episode, so you've been warned. If the ratings given to the songs were part of the public record, I'd go through them in numerical order, from the best to the worst. But those scores are not for public eyes, so we'll just start our listen of the five nominees with the first of two nominated songs that came from the Walt Disney Studios that year. It's Candle on the Water, from the musical Pete's Dragon. Al Kasha and Joel Hirshhorn, who each won two Oscars for writing songs for Irwin Allen disaster movies, had moved to Disney after the disaster movie genre fizzled out and Irwin Allen stopped making good movies. 
Their first assignment was to put a song into Pete's Dragon, which had not officially been written as a musical. With their penchant for writing Oscar-winning torch songs, Kasha and Hershorn were asked to write another torch song for a woman who is hoping that her fiancé will return a year after being lost at sea. To make things even more obvious, the song Candle on the Water is sung on top of a lighthouse. The woman, named Nora, and played by singer and sometimes actress Helen Reddy, sings it in almost one unedited shot. Disney's executives enjoyed Candle on the Water. They asked Kasha and Hershorn to write the remaining nine songs to officially turn the movie about an orphan and his imaginary dragon into a musical. Because it was written first with no other songs planned, Candle on the Water sounds very different from the others. 
it's the only one that could be lifted from the film and turned into a commercial release. That's exactly what Disney did, asking Ready to record a version with a slightly different musical arrangement to make it more of a pop song. That version didn't make it onto the Billboard Hot 100 charts, but it did get as high as number 27 on the Adult Contemporary chart in December 1977. This was Reddy's second film role, and our first time singing on film. Though Candle on the Water didn't match the success of her 1971 hit, I Am Woman, she continued to divide her time between acting and singing through the 1980s. Pete's Dragon wasn't a big success either, mostly because... At two hours long, it was probably too long for kids, and critics noticed that it felt like Disney was trying to find the next Mary Poppins. The movie made $18 million, which wasn't very much in 1977, even though it came out in the crucial year-end holiday season. In 1977, the Walt Disney Studio was in bad shape. The company had been focusing mostly on live-action movies, with the last fully animated movie being Robin Hood in 1973. Walt Disney's successor, his brother Roy, fully committed the studio to making live-action comedies, and after his death in 1971, the company was rudderless, seemingly unsure if the direction was to return to animated movies, or live-action movies, or both. That resulted in a lack of quality in the animated motion picture department, which can be seen in The Rescuers, which was released in the summer of 1977. Despite the studio's lack of solid leadership, The Rescuers turned out to be a big hit, appealing to the kids who yearned for animated movies and the adults who remembered Snow White, Cinderella, and others. The song score is written by Carol Connors and Anne Robbins, who had received an Oscar nomination the year before for writing lyrics to Gonna Fly Now for Rocky. That song was written after they finished writing the songs for The Rescuers, which took a long time to finish post-production. Connors and Robbins got the gig writing songs for The Rescuers thanks to Robbins' previous work as Ava Gabor's secretary. Gabor stars as one of the mice who is tasked with rescuing a human girl who has been kidnapped, and the two songwriters created four songs for the movie. Shelby Flint performs three of the songs in the movie off-screen as a sort of one-woman Greek chorus, the first time since Bambi that the characters on screen don't sing in a Disney animated movie. The song that received the Oscar nomination from The Rescuers is Someone's Waiting For You. And Connors and Robbins got a little help with the song from two-time Oscar winner Sammy Fain. This was the third time Fain wrote songs for a Disney movie, the previous two being from Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan. The kidnapped girl, Penny, has just been told by her evil kidnapper that no one will adopt an ugly girl like her. Penny goes off crying her tears falling into the swamp water where she is being held. Shelby Flynn is there with the song to offer her some reassurance that joy and happiness will come her way if she believes in it.
Sammy Fain had become the oldest person nominated in the original song category the previous year, and the 75-year-old extended that record with Someone's Waiting For You. The song was released as part of the film's soundtrack album, but it didn't have any traction on the Billboard charts when it came out in summer 1977. Song nominee number three comes from a live-action musical that had the potential to score big. It was The Slipper and the Rose the first time that the Cinderella story was told in live-action form on the big screen. This very proper British production was not like the animated Disney version. For starters, more time is spent knowing the prince, and tells more of the story of what happened after the glass slipper fit. It's not really a movie for the kids, especially since it runs 2 hours and 20 minutes, and the song score is definitely more grown-up, with nothing like bibbidi-bobbidi-boo to be heard. The songs were written by the former kings of Disney songs, Robert and Richard Sherman. They also contributed to the screenplay, which New York Times critic Vincent Canby said was a mistake. Quote, The Shermans have stretched the fable without mercy, largely to accommodate a whole bunch of forgettable songs, who sound as if they're parodying the worst of the Broadway musical theater of the 50s. End quote. Very few critics praised the songs, Though, after the film was shown for the Queen Mother in England in March 1976, she told the Shermans, quote, The waltz you wrote for the ballroom scene is the most beautiful song I've ever heard. End quote. That waltz is played as Cinderella and Prince Edward meet and dance for the first time.
The Waltz is the melody for the song that earned the Oscar nomination, called The Slipper and the Rose Waltz. The subtitle to the song is He Danced With Me, She Danced With Me. And it comes after the clock strikes midnight and Cinderella runs away before her elegant dress disappears and she becomes the lowly Cinderella again. After she is a safe distance from the castle, she remembers the evening musically as she runs home. Back at the castle, Edward holds the glass slipper Cinderella left behind, places it on the ballroom floor, and sings while recreating part of their dance. The two will share essentially the same lyrics, though with different meanings. Cinderella is joyful about the fantasy she experienced, while Edward is sad that he has lost his true love.
Richard Chamberlain plays Prince Edward, and it really is him singing. He's still six years away from his career-making role in the TV miniseries The Thornbirds, and he had been making a small but distinguished career in The Three Musketeers and The Towering Inferno, just to name a couple of his movie appearances. The Sherman brothers marked their seventh and eighth Oscar nominations with this movie. They were nominated not only for writing the song The Slipper and the Rose Waltz, but also for the entire song score. In 1977, the Sherman Brothers were honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, perhaps 15 years later than it should have happened, but better late than never. After a four-year absence, James Bond is back in the original song category, and an unlikely composer took the reins from John Barry to create an eclectic score for The Spy Who Loved Me, and a love song that broke all the rules of the 007 films. Nobody Does It Better is the song that plays during the main credits. After a perilous ski chase down a mountain that ends with Bond skiing off a cliff and free-falling before opening a parachute with the Union Jack flag on it. That intense scene leads us into a very serene piano opening, followed by a female singer praising James Bond's talents. Not his talents as an international spy, but as one of the screen's best lovers. The song is largely devoid of the bombastic elements that made many of the previous Bond songs famous, including Goldfinger and Live and Let Die. This is the first official love song about James Bond, and the first time the title of the movie isn't the title of the song. But you'll hear the words, The Spy Who Loved Me, in the song, probably as a directive from the filmmakers.
That's Carly Simon on the vocals. Five years earlier, she became a superstar with You're So Vain, which prompted so many urban legends about who is the subject of the song. She'd written and performed a throwaway song for the 1971 Milos Forman film, Taking Off. But we can consider Nobody Does It Better essentially Carly Simon's introduction to the movie song business. Three-time Oscar winner Marvin Hamlish would seem like a strange choice to take on the role of composing the film score and the music for the main song. John Barry, who had worked on just about all of the Bond films, couldn't accept the job because the work meant returning to the United Kingdom, which he did not want to do because he owed a large sum of taxes to the British government. Because he owed taxes, Barry was unable to collect any royalties from any of his work, which was a hefty sum of money. Hamlish is the first non-British person to serve as composer in the James Bond series, and Carol Bayer Sager is the first American lyricist for a Bond song, coming into the movie music business about 10 years after her first published song, A Groovy Kind of Love, sold more than a million copies in 1958. The song is also played at the end of the movie, when Bond is seen making out with the Russian agent he had been teaming up with the entire film. As the camera pulls back from the Navy ship, we get a comical version of Nobody Does It Better, a version that sounds very much like the song One that Hamlish wrote for his smash Broadway musical A Chorus Line a few years earlier. It segues into Simon's version of the song during the end credits. Nobody does it better Makes me feel sad for the rest Nobody does it half as good as you, baby. As part of a three-hour documentary detailing the making of The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977, Hamlish talked at length about creating the song. So I just wrote this part of it, this very fun part. I just had about a few bars of that. 
And then I was working with my lyricist, uh, Carol Bear-Sager, who's a kind of a well-known lyricist, having done a lot of stuff with uh, Melissa Manchester, and in fact now has her own album. And uh, I let her read the script, and I said, what do you think could be said about James Bond, you know, after all these years? And she, I played her the uh, music of the f front strain of the piece, and she came up with the title, which we think is the most modest title of all, called Nobody Does It Better. And so all of a sudden, that little phrase became, Nobody does it better. Once having that, uh, the next part that I had to do was write a verse. Verses are not the most easy thing in the world. And uh, it took me quite a while to write this verse. In fact, I left the song for about three or four weeks because the picture, I had the script in so many weeks in advance that I had much more time to write this than normally. So I let it go for a while, until about three or four, five weeks later, when I got into what is called the funky mood. I don't know what that means, but I guess it means you get down. I was told you get down. So I was down, I guess, and I started to write the uh, verses. And then once we had the verses, I gave it back to Carol, and then she put in the lyric. And we went through, this lyric is what we would call definitely double entendre, and a lot of fun, very vain. And I guess from there we decided if it was that vain, we should have Carly Simon sing it. <laughs> So the next thing you know, we had Carly Simon singing a James Bond song with the title, Nobody Does It Better. So figure it out. I wonder if you could explain to us how you work on the music for the film. For example, who do you work with most closely? Most closely? Um, well, to be honest with you, the, the, the terrible thing about writing uh, motion picture music is it actually is very lonely. So when you say to me, who did I work with, it, it takes me a while to think about it because Basically, when I see the movie, everyone else has left. The stars are gone, right? So I meet with the director and the producer, and we talk, and then they leave. And they're on their little holiday, having worked eight or ten months on this picture, while I've just walked in fresh. So I had a flat in London. I guess I worked most closely with the maid, because she always would kind of get the room back to in order after I'd made the mess. But I did not work closely in what I do with anyone else, except, of course, when I'm writing the song which is really one, let's say there's, if the song is three minutes worth and the picture has about 50 minutes worth of uh, music, uh, you can see where I had to work pretty much alone for, the, for those other 47 minutes. Around the time that Bayer Sager was writing the lyrics for Nobody Does It Better, she was involved in a relationship with Hamlish that resulted in her divorce from husband Andrew Sager in 1978. One has to wonder if the lyrics reflected Bayer Sager's views on her romance with Hamlish. The two of them profited off their relationship the next year with the Broadway musical They're Playing Our Song, which chronicles the lives of two songwriters in love. Nobody Does It Better got as high as number two on the Billboard Hot 100 charts in October 1977, taking three months to make it to that point. The song that kept Nobody Does It Better from the number one spot was You Light Up My Life, which is also its competition for the original song Academy Award. It's the title song from the drama about a woman who strives to be a famous singer, and the song You Light Up My Life is the hit that starts her on the path to stardom. Dee Dee Kahn plays Lori, the aspiring singer and actress who has a one-night stand with a man named Chris who turns out to be a film director. The music that plays over their love scene is the instrumental version of You Light Up My Life. 
A couple of days later, Laurie shows up at a recording studio to do some voice dubbing work for a movie and realizes that Chris is the director of that movie. Things are awkward for a bit until Chris asks her to sing a song she wrote, a song for which she just happens to have the sheet music in her purse. Laurie has been recording a couple of songs throughout the movie, but only with a small group of musicians, not 50 or so members of an orchestra. The song is filmed in almost one take, with the exception of the final 10 seconds as we watch Laurie sing and the various sections of the orchestra play their parts. Okay, everybody get a good look and we'll go. Okay, what's the name of the song? You Light Up My Life. You Light Up My Life. Right, You Light Up My Life. Take one. Okay, I'll give you two. One, two, three, two, two, and... So
Joseph Brooks wrote the music and the lyrics for the song, just one of six that he wrote for the film. Brooks also wrote, produced, and directed the movie, the first time he had written, produced, and directed a movie. Brooks spent the 1960s making a lot of money and gaining some attention as a jingle writer for TV ads, including tunes for Pepsi and Maxwell House. His songwriting talents were put to use in 1973 for the movie Jeremy, in which he wrote the song Blue Balloon. The movie and the song went nowhere, but learning about the movie business convinced Brooks to conceive the movie You Light Up My Life. The other five songs Brooks wrote for the movie don't have the same impact as the title song. Mostly, they're sung by Laurie, and in some way, all of them talk about being in love and writing a song to show it. Only You Light Up My Life got any attention away from the movie, and the commercial recording became the most successful record of the 1970s. The story behind the song You Light Up My Life has a lot of gaps in it that, unfortunately, will never be answered. Brooks had trouble getting studios to distribute Light Up My Life. But after Columbia picked it up and the movie started to earn decent money, there was a push to release the song You Light Up My Life as a single. Casey Kissick got the job singing the film version of You Light Up My Life because she had sung a lot of the jingles that Brooks wrote in his former life in advertising. But Brooks decided to go with a new singer named Debbie Boone for the commercial recording instead of Kissick. The reasons why have never been a part of the public record, but the rumors have persisted in the past 40-plus years that indicate that Brooks denied Kissick the chance to record the commercial version after she rebuffed his repeated sexual advances throughout production of the movie. Neither Brooks nor Kissick had spoken publicly about this, but when Debbie Boone was hired, Brooks instructed her to sing exactly as Kissick did in the film version. Boone had to do take after take after take to get the sound just right, a process which she has been quoted as saying brought her to tears. Boone, who is the daughter of the legendary singer Pat Boone, was part of a singing group with her three sisters until 1977. Studio executives immediately suggested that Debbie Boone launch a solo singing career, and word got to her that You Light Up My Life was available if she wanted it. And talk about a debut single. So many nights I'd sit by my window Waiting for someone to sing Almost overnight, 
Debbie Boone became a sensation. Just as the song shot to number one in the movie, You Light Up My Life spent 10 weeks at number one on the Billboard charts. The longest time any song had held that spot in the 20-year history of the Billboard Hot 100. The song was featured on Debbie Boone's debut album, also called You Light Up My Life, and it was a million-selling record. Boone went on tour to promote the song, saying that every time she performed You Light Up My Life, she dedicated it to God instead of interpreting it as a love song. Columbia Pictures released Casey Kissick's version of You Light Up My Life around the same time, but it got little notice. On the record label, the performer is listed as Original Cast, not Casey Kissick. This was probably another act of retaliation by Brooks as a way to keep Kissick from gaining any recognition for her work in the movie. You Light Up My Life was the number one song until Christmas Eve 1977, when another movie song by an Australian trio of brothers knocked Debbie Boone off her record-setting perch. The song was How Deep Is Your Love, from the movie Saturday Night Fever just one of three songs from the movie that would take over the Billboard charts in late 1977 and early 1978. Despite their popularity with the public, none of these songs were deemed good enough by the music branch to earn an Academy Award nomination. Heck, they weren't even liked enough to get past the preliminary voting round. And in hindsight, that's pretty shocking. Robert Stigwood was the producer of Saturday Night Fever, having bought the film rights to an article in New York Magazine. Though the writer later admitted to making up most of the story, the movie itself was a big hit. I hadn't seen the movie all the way through in about 20 years, and I forgot almost all of the movie that takes place after the climactic dance scene, including that shocking rape scene. Critics hailed the gritty realism of the movie, as well as the performance of John Travolta and those songs by the Bee Gees. Stigwood discovered the Bee Gees in Australia in 1967, and when the trio of Gibb brothers were looking to revive their career in the 1970s, Stigwood suggested that they switch to disco music. They recorded the hit Jive Talkin' in 1975, and it was a number one hit. That convinced Stigwood that they could write some songs for his movie about a Brooklyn man with dreams of winning the big dance contest. The Bee Gees wrote six songs for the film before the script was finished, including How Deep Is Your Love. That song is played near the end of the film after a tragic death and a turning point for Travolta as he professes his love for his dance partner, played by Karen Lynn Gorney. Touch me in the pouring rain And the moment that you wander apart from me I want to feel you in my arms again And you come to me on a summer breeze Keep me warm in your love Then you softly leave And it's me you need to
After How Deep Is Your Love enjoyed three weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, the second release from the film was on its way up to number one. The opening song from the film, played during that iconic opening shot of Travolta walking down the streets of Brooklyn, was Stayin' Alive, and officially made the Bee Gees the hottest group in the world. One of the other songs to become popular thanks to Saturday Night Fever was You Should Be Dancing, played during Travolta's solo dance scene at the club. It's that scene that likely earned Travolta the Academy Award nomination for Best Actor, but the song itself wasn't eligible for an Academy Award because it was written and produced by the Bee Gees in 1976. The Saturday Night Fever soundtrack supplanted A Star is Born as the best-selling soundtrack album in history, with about 16 million copies sold. The Bee Gees, Barry, Maurice, and Robin Gibb, were eligible to have their song score nominated for an Academy Award, 
but they were looked over there too in favor of The Slipper and the Rose, Pete's Dragon, and the adaptation of the Broadway show A Little Night Music. But why were the Bee Gees not nominated for original song? We already know that the 200 or so members of the music branch skewed older, much older than the demographic that was going mad for the music in Saturday Night Fever. Though only five of the 12 winners of the past seven Oscars for Best Song were 40 years old or older in 1977, most of their peers in the music branch were likely a product of the Hollywood studio system of the 1940s and 1950s. Elmer Bernstein, Don Black, Michelle Legrand, and others were likely strongly against the introduction of disco music into the movies, very similar to the music branch's dislike of the Beatles' attempt to muscle their music into the movies in the 1960s. If any music branch member gave any songs in Saturday Night Fever a score of 8 or 10, it probably wasn't enough to offset the low scores that the older voters gave the songs out of contempt, and probably not because the songs weren't good. I mean, I guess it was fine for them to like theme from Shaft, and they were fine with Marvin Hamlish pulling a little disco flair into The Spy Who Loved Me, but the Bee Gees, they just went too far. Even though they were passed over for the Academy Awards for achievements in 1977, the Bee Gees got some recognition in 1979 when Saturday Night Fever earned a Grammy nomination for Album of the Year with the other artists featured on the soundtrack. The album won, making it the first movie soundtrack to win the big award. I'm not counting the soundtrack to Peter Gunn because that was television. The song Stayin' Alive was nominated for the Song of the Year Grammy, about as close as the Bee Gees could get to the Oscar for Best Original Song. They lost to Billy Joel's Just the Way You Are. Though Stayin' Alive didn't earn any hardware for the Gip Brothers, the song's place in movie history was cemented when the American Film Institute named the song as the ninth best in film history. Another song that has since become a major part of the public consciousness was the theme song from Martin Scorsese's follow-up to Taxi Driver. The movie was New York, New York, and it starred Robert De Niro as a saxophone player romancing Liza Minnelli's singer. The movie was a flop. Well, a really big flop. But the title song made an impression on members of the Academy's music branch, who made it one of the seven songs to make it past the preliminary round of voting. It has a lot of relevance to the movie, showing up a couple of times as Minnelli and De Niro played in their apartment as a song she would like to sing when she becomes a big superstar. After the two break up and go their separate ways, Minnelli becomes a star, and De Niro comes to the club to hear her sing. It's New York, New York that he hears. Oh 
The song was written by John Kander and Fred Ebb, who wrote the songs for Cabaret, helping Liza Minnelli become an Oscar-winning actress. In an interview they gave a few years later, Kander and Ebb said it was De Niro who helped shape the song's melody. De Niro said the tune was too weak, helping the songwriters come up with a more rousing arrangement. It wasn't enough to give Kander and Ebb an Oscar nomination for the song, though but they would be recognized when the American Film Institute also put it on the list of 100 best movie songs of the first 100 years of cinema. It was not until 1980 that New York, New York became a big hit thanks to Frank Sinatra recording it and putting it on his album Trilogy, Past, Present, and Future. And if you're in New York City's Times Square on New Year's Eve, you'll hear New York, New York after the clock strikes 12. By the way, The seventh song that made it onto the Academy preliminary ballot, good enough to earn an average score of 7.0 or better, was What Was from the movie The Late Show. Just like the movie, which works as a film noir that would have been made in the 1950s, the song itself feels like it was written 25 years ago as performed by Bev Kelly. Is that dream that comes to taunt you, teasing you, leading you back through the years? But just when you reach out to touch, it all disappears. Is the only thing you cling to And what was Is the only song you sing to There are ways time can praise Those are the days But just Ken Wanberg, who had been serving as music editor for many years after attempting to become a composer, wrote the music for What Was, in addition to composing the score for The Late Show. 
Stephen Lenner wrote the lyrics, and it appears that he came out of thin air to write this song, then disappeared without a trace. No record of any previous Hollywood work can be found for Lenner, including on the very reliable Internet Movie Database. And perhaps this was a pen name, and we don't know who the person's real name is. If What Was had survived the final ballot and become an official nominee, perhaps Stephen Lenner, if that is his real name, would have found himself immediately available for lots of movie work. So, the potential for superstar performances by the Bee Gees was not possible for the big celebration for the 50th Academy Awards on April 3, 1978. But producers Howard Koch and Alan Carr invited 16 Oscar winners to serve as presenters on the show, with others to parade out during a song called Look How Far We've Come. As far as the original song performers go, the show had a chance to feature an all-female list for the 50th anniversary because for the first time in Oscar history, all of the nominated songs had been performed by women in the original film versions. The producers did the right thing by inviting women to sing all five of them, even though only one of them was the original performer. Debbie Boone was the biggest of them all, coming to sing You Light Up My Life with a group of 11 girls who were introduced as part of the John Tracy Clinic for the Deaf. They were on stage to translate the lyrics to the song into American Sign Language while Boone sang. There was no explained reason why the girls needed to be on stage since neither the film nor the song had anything to do with deaf people. A couple of days after the Oscar show, Several members of Hollywood's deaf community protested the performance on the grounds that the girls weren't deaf, and that many of the words they were signing didn't correlate to the lyrics. Plus, it was revealed that the girls were not from the John Tracy Clinic for the Deaf, but rather from Sam Levy School, a regular public school in Torrance, California. We're offended because we have many deaf children who could have done the same thing if they had been given the opportunity said Greg Brooks, who isn't deaf and not related to songwriter Joseph Brooks, but was the spokesperson, as it were, for the Alliance of Deaf Artists. The other song performances, though, went without controversy. Gloria Loring, who was about to become a successful songwriter with the theme songs for the TV shows The Facts of Life and Different Strokes, sang both Disney songs. And Jane Powell, who hadn't acted in movies since 1958, returned to Hollywood a somewhat successful stage actress to sing the female portion of The Slipper and the Rose Waltz. Aretha Franklin made her third Oscar appearance to sing Nobody Does It Better, but she was not going to imitate Carly Simon's version. Her performance started with a rhythm and blues vibe like only Aretha Franklin could do, before quickly shifting to a rock-disco hybrid with a faster beat that made it suitable for the dance club. And that was highlighted by close to 40 dancers on the Oscar stage twirling hula hoops around her. Makes me feel sad for Nobody does it. Yeah, 
makes you wonder why Aretha Franklin had never been asked to sing an original song for the movies. Every time she performs one at the Oscars, she gives it a new vibe that makes it better in some cases, or at least shows how she could put her personal spin on it. The history-making year of original songs presented some great choices for the Oscar. You Light Up My Life was on a roll, having won the Golden Globe in January 1978 for original song, beating out Nobody Does It Better, the theme from New York, New York, and How Deep Is Your Love. And the winning kept coming at the Grammy Awards in February. Joseph Brooks won Song of the Year for You Light Up My Life in a tie with the previous year's Oscar winner for original song, Evergreen. Because the eligibility period for the Grammy Awards is not the same as that of the Oscars, it's not uncommon for songs from two different calendar years to compete against each other. So, two love songs from the movies took that award, but neither of them was any match for Hotel California by the Eagles, which won the Grammy for Record of the Year. One month later at the Academy Awards, it was probably a foregone conclusion that You Light Up My Life was going to win original song. Marvin Hamlish had to think he was in good with the Academy, having won three Oscars in one night four years earlier. In fact, You Light Up My Life was the only song that was not written by at least one previous Oscar recipient. Did the Academy voters know that, though? The names of the songwriters aren't listed on the Academy ballot in an attempt to keep bias toward a particular person out of the thought process for voting. And a film editor who is a voting member of the Academy probably won't do the research to find out who wrote that song he liked, and whether or not he likes that songwriter or not. It was Fred Astaire who was going to make the announcement. 
Astaire had sung eight songs that were nominated for the Oscar at the height of his career from 1934 to 1955, and he arrived to a standing ovation the likes of which he hadn't gotten in any of his previous appearances. He went right into announcing the nominees, opened the envelope, and called out, You Light Up My Life, as the Oscar-winning song. Joseph Brooks' speech was short, not mentioning anyone associated with the song, especially Casey Kissick, and he didn't mention Debbie Boone either. And going back to that Oscar performance, the Academy didn't issue a statement about the performance in response to the Alliance of Deaf Artists, possibly because they didn't want to tarnish the performance or take away from the win by Joseph Brooks. Unfortunately, there isn't a great postscript for the people associated with You Light Up My Life. Casey Kissick had to wait years until she was finally recognized as the singer of the film version of the song, and Debbie Boone turned out to be a one-hit wonder in a way. Though she won Best New Artist at the same Grammy Awards that gave Joseph Brooks Song of the Year, Boone was not able to fully capitalize on it. Future songs never got close to the same exposure or sold as well as You Light Up My Life for Boone, who would transition to country music and Christian music for the remainder of her career. She would win a few Grammys for her Christian music, but it never got the same crossover appeal as her debut song. Joseph Brooks was a one-man show for another movie in 1978 called If I Ever See You Again. He also acted in the movie, which didn't help his aspirations as an actor. Roberta Flack sang the title song, and it was a decent hit, but the movie bombed badly. It couldn't make half of its $3 million budget back, and in 1977, that definitely is what you would call a flop. And things just got worse for Joseph Brooks. In 2005, he wrote and directed the Broadway show In My Life, about two very weird people whose lives are connected by God, who happens to sing show tunes. The show closed after 61 performances, or about two months. In 2009, Brooks was accused of sexual assault by 11 women, who claimed they were raped in his New York City apartment after being lured there to audition for movie roles. A grand jury indicted him on June 2009, along with his assistant, Shawnee Lucier, on more than 90 counts of rape and other charges. On May 22, 2011, before the case had gone to trial, Brooks committed suicide by asphyxiation, citing his increasing health problems in his suicide note. He died confident he would have been acquitted, but Lucier pleaded guilty after his death on charges of criminal facilitation. It's a sad footnote for a song that became the biggest hit of the 1970s and for many years rivaled White Christmas as the most popular song to come from a movie. The life of its creator definitely put a stain on its history, but the song's composition still stands strong on its own merits. For six of the songwriters nominated for 1977, this marked their final Oscar nominations. At the top of this list is Sammy Fain, who retired at 75 years old, with two Oscars out of ten nominations. We'll see if he remains the oldest Oscar-nominated songwriter in the coming years. After such a big year for movie songs in 1977, it's going to be tough for anyone to top it in 1978. 
Robert Stigwood is coming back to produce a musical that will try very hard to sell records and make an impact at the box office and at the Academy Awards. Debbie Boone will try to ride the coattails of You Light Up My Life by originating one more Oscar-nominated song. And we'll see if disco can finally, officially change the hearts and minds of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. That's all coming in the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. Until then, I'd love to know what you think about the movie songs released in 1977. Do you agree that this was one of the best years of movie music in history? And did the Academy get it right with its choice for Best Original Song and the five nominees? You can send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com with questions and or comments. It's been a thrill singing along with you and learning about some great music in this episode. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.